This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Who can forget Scott Morrison, our Prime Minister, and Barnaby Joyce, red-faced and laughing at a lump of coal? This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. But I've come to the conclusion that we are afraid of coal and gas. We are throwing subsidies at their owners as they prepare to throw us under the bus of climate catastrophe. How to break their power over our future is our question tonight. This episode of the Climate Action Show is about the just transition for coal communities. You've heard a lot about that before, haven't you? It's a demand, but the question is, how does it work? I have been impressed by unionists from Germany who came out here describing the transformation of their black coal region. They employed over half a million miners in the 1950s, and they will mine brown coal until 2038, but their last black coal mine shut in 2018. And they did this by consolidating all the mines under a single owner operating under the slogan, No One Left Behind. To maintain the coal communities, new transport infrastructure and universities were built. Waterways were rehabilitated and mine sites were converted to museums, parks and future industry hubs. They have an eternity fund to manage pensions and to manage the continuous pumping that keeps the region's poisoned underground water below ground. Our colleague Kurt Johnson interviewed Michael Mersman back in 2018, and I'm going to play just a small bit of um, his interview with him. Uh, Michael Mersman is the Director of Globalisation for the German Union of Mining and Energy Workers. Miners have a big power because they stand together. Most of them um, in Germany, it is a fact over more than 98% of our people are members in the union. Yes. So there were also fights in Germany in the beginning where miners uh, go on a run to, to the capital in, in former times, Bonn, to, to well pressure well, the, the government, of course, and also the employees. At the end, for all partners, it was the best way to be frank and, uh, and, and clear. And um, if they made agreement, and they did, then these agreements will uh, hold up to the end. And it is still today that we have thousands of people still in qualification measures, et cetera, et cetera. Right. When an area goes into long-term unemployment, there are significant social costs. We have some of this in Australia where there is a large stress on families and a large stress on local business. Were you thinking, were you worried about that when you were going through this process? 
Mm, yes, of course, because it is not only the mind what becomes unemployed, also all the surroundings, let's say the butcher or the, the uh, handyman, you know, live also yes. from uh, uh, the people in the mine. Uh, but that was the reason why we um, discussed not uh, even the mining sector, we did it together with all the other uh, sectors around the mine. So it was, in the, in the case of the Ruhr Valley, it was a process for the whole Ruhr Valley, not only for special mines. It was a process for 10, 12 mines in the peak. Michael Mersman told the Sydney Morning Herald he didn't think Australians could really manage such a transition. He said, you are rather heading towards a conflict, not consensus. And he saw the stumbling block here as the complete lack of acceptance in Australia that coal has a limited future. We hear it all the time from Canberra. And so I decided to see if we are any closer in 2021 with climate action so much more front of mind. We'll hear tonight from Professor Roy Green, who is the chair of the Port of Newcastle. Now he's talking to Aaron Attridge at the Stockholm Environment Institute. They've started publishing a series of podcasts on investigating countries that, are, that need to make this transition. And Aaron Attridge is an Australian, so he's talking to Professor Green up in Newcastle. And it's quite fascinating because he sees quite a bright future. He sees the diversification of the port into more container trade and a shift to exporting green hydrogen. He reminds us how Australia managed to transition very successfully once before when the BHP steelworks closed. So can we do it again? We'll hear from Warwick Jordan of the Hunter Jobs Alliance and local voices from Hunter Renewal. But I'm still left with the impression that no one is in charge, really. Some unions and climate action groups like Friends of the Earth want a national transition authority. Um, Alex Greenwich in the New South Wales Parliament proposed a transition authority, but it hasn't passed through yet. We'll hear two economists then from the Australia Institute, Richard Dennis and Rod Campbell. Now, they say there's no economic sense in new coal projects. Well, obviously, from the climate change point of view, there's no sense in it at all. But still, we're pushing forward with that. And a lot of money is being sunk into the public money, into the Adani project, which will open up not just Adani, but the five new mines of the Galilee Basin, which would be a climate bomb, but which would also, this is the economic cost, would also ruin the livelihood of the Hunter Valley miners who are already in established mines and will have a future for some time. So we need a plan. The last speaker we'll hear from is Christopher Sheldon. He's an Australian energy expert working with the World Bank. Now, I don't think there's any need for us to reinvent the wheel. The World Bank does these sort of transitions all the time and he'll talk about how it unfolded in Romania and Greece. The transition has to happen, but as one unionist said to me, it seems as if we're too late for planning now. Can this be true? The 
The city of Newcastle, just two hours north of Sydney on Australia's east coast, is home to the world's largest coal port. Just inland from Newcastle, the Hunter Valley is one of Australia's main coal basins. We begin here to find out how the future looks on the ground. Professor Roy Green is chair of the port. Professor Green was formerly dean of the business school at the University of Technology in Sydney, and he has lived for many years in the Hunter region. So, a man well-placed to discuss what the future holds for this coal mining region and its economy. Thank you, Roy, for joining me. You're chair of the world's largest coal port. Can you tell us a little about the port and its role in world coal trade and perhaps what the future looks like for a major coal port like Newcastle? Port of Newcastle um, has a very long history in Australia, 200 years old. It goes back to the origins of settlement in Australia uh, and it's become associated mainly with thermal coal exports and indeed uh, is the world's largest exporter of thermal coal. It is connected to a region called the Hunter Valley which has some of the richest thermal coal seams in the world. Very high quality coal, it, it sets the benchmark price globally, a bit like Brent crude or uh, other bench prices in fossil fuels. But the port of Newcastle also knows that despite the fact that 90% of its volume and, and almost that of its revenue coming from export of thermal coal needs to think about the future because we also recognise that thermal coal exports are tapering off even with the high quality operation that we have in Newcastle. And what will it look like in practice, do you think, for the Hunter Valley region? Diversification is massive structural change for all of those coal communities. For the port of Newcastle, this uh, will certainly encompass a shift to container port traffic, something that hasn't been developed in that region in the past. Uh, but it will also mean other kinds of bulk exports as well, uh, with a focus on the development of a hydrogen economy, uh, green hydrogen uh, with renewable uh, sources of energy, powering water electrolysis. The problem in Newcastle, of course, is that the government has placed a restriction on the port as part of its privatisation program of all the New South Wales ports uh, that confines container movements to the port in Sydney, Port Botany, and prevents uh, competition. But that's something that we think can feasibly be removed in coming years as the government realises you can't just have a, a port confined to coal because if that were to be the case, the port wouldn't have a long-term future at all and certainly it wouldn't be a good prospect for refinancing. So if diversification is to mean anything in the region as a whole, it will mean expanding other industries that are currently there wheat and grains of various types but also the equine industry and the wine industry which is a, a huge employer and uh, a major industry for the Hunter region. The idea of big social and economic changes isn't new to this region is it? Can you tell us a bit about the last big change that the Hunter region underwent? It, 20 years ago um, the uh, large blast furnace at BHP Steel 
was closed. Um, a very sophisticated and effective transition program was built around that uh, in cons consultation with uh, people in the region. Um, the government at every level plus BHP contributed over $20 million, uh, quite a lot at that time, uh, to that transition. And what it meant was that most of the people in the steelworks, around 4,000 people, uh, found other jobs. And in addition to that were a number of new investments that um, replaced the steel plant and which enabled the region to essentially accommodate this huge loss of jobs and grow into the future, which it has been doing ever since. Are there lessons from the closure of Newcastle Steelworks and the planning that went into that for the city you think might be useful for other coal communities around the world as they face up to a future beyond coal? Yes, there are real lessons, I think, from the closure of the steelworks, uh, which was really associated with the uh, not just the economy but the culture of the town and the region um, over the previous 100 years or so. Firstly, um, you have to plan these transitions a long way in advance. This one was planned for five or six years. It was part of a massive community consultation. A new group was formed with all the local business union and other leaders, community leaders, uh, to participate in discussions about how that transition should take place. And um, in the end, two-thirds of the workers there found other employment. It was um, a transition that was managed as about effectively as one could possibly imagine. In fact, looking back, some people describe it as a best practice redundancy program. But the other lesson was that it also required a lot of resources. Uh, you can't do these things lightly. Uh, it required resources from all levels of government and it required uh, significant investment from BHP. If a transition plan is needed for coal mining communities in the Hunter Valley, who needs to take a lead in that process? Which stakeholders need to be around the table uh, to start the process off and to implement some kind of transition plan? Um, clearly the large employers must live up to their responsibility in this, whether or not they're involved in the coal industry. All need to play a leadership role along with the community itself uh, via local government. Uh, there's now a joint organisation of all the local councils in the region. Uh, the unions need to play a role. Uh, they've been in the forefront of the discussion about just transition in the interests of their own members. Uh, community organisations um, all, I think, need to contribute, but they need to contribute in a coherent and coordinated fashion. The lesson that we learned from the steel closure was that if you have a, a unified group representing the community, representing business, representing the, the workers, many of whom will be displaced by change, and representing education, research and training in the community, uh, you get effective outcomes. But the, the point is it must be a very unified approach because no one can do it on, the, on their own uh, and unless the position is coordinated and is well resourced as well by government because transitions are not cost free. They are resource intensive but they are also 
ones where investment pays a very high return in the long run if it's done well. Now we'll hear from Rod Campbell and Richard Dennis, who are two economists at the Australia Institute. And this is courtesy of um, Aaron Attridge in the Stockholm Environment Institute, looking into transitions. You can't even begin a debate about a just transition when we in Australia haven't agreed that we're going to produce less coal. We are in the middle of an enormous expansion in coal production capacity. And we have state and federal governments facilitating the expansion of coal production. So to talk at the same time about how to transition justly, well, the most just thing we can do is to not build new coal mines. New coal mines employing new people in new regions are offering false hope to those people while leading to the premature job destruction of existing coal workers in existing coal communities. So if we were having a serious debate about transition, then we could we could we could factor those things in. But we're not in Australia. We're planning an expansion. And to the extent there is work being done on just transition, it's around the transition away from coal-fired power stations as opposed to coal export, uh, sorry, yeah, coal uh, mine exports, which if you think about it makes no sense because if we want to prop up our coal-fired power stations forever, we can. Um, no one wants to, but we, we're in control of that. The one thing we have no control over is world demand for our coal. So if we were going to do transition planning, you would think we would focus it in and around the, the, the export coal mines because that's beyond our control and, and the trend seems to be set. Yet, as Rod said, we, we have planning departments that are resolutely determined to not plan. Where are the labour unions in all this? Uh, are the unions in favour of expanding coal mining or of protecting existing workers? Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting point. We have, we have two unions that... Uh, uh, the main representatives of the mining sector, um, and certainly the the main one that gets talked about is the CFMMEU. Um, yeah, they're they're very open that uh, thermal coal it will come to an end, um, and that there needs to be some kind of transition, and they want their their members looked after. Uh, they're they're certainly not climate change deniers, um, and but you know. It, they're large organisations and they have different constituencies in different places, just like political parties and just like governments. Um, and so some of the reactions of unions um, in Australia have been uh, piecemeal um, and not entirely consistent. And also the, 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 the biggest mining union, the CFMMMEU, uh, is a federation. How do you hold a federated structure together? Usually through compromise even though the Adani mine in Queensland will inevitably hurt the existing coal mines in the Hunter Valley, um, historically, solidarity has required that everyone in every state supports every mine. And in a growing economy, in a, in a, in, when there was growing world demand for coal, that was a painless strategy. But once the demand for coal is limited and new mines displace old ones, uh, the what was a good political strategy is now a bad economic and political strategy. But solidarity is is still binding, and overall, you'd have to say that publicly the mining unions have been supportive. 
So looking forward then, where do you see the coal debate going in Australia? Is anyone going to take a lead, uh, provide resources so that a sensible debate and an actual planning process is started? Or is politics forever going to hold this up until the industry suddenly dies and coal communities are left in the lurch? Uh, I don't see anyone taking any leads anytime soon, to be honest. I think we're just going to ignore the... We're going to stick our heads in the sand. Um, we're going to try and shovel as much money at the industry as we possibly can to make it look as good as we can for as long as we can. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't see any leading or any planning in, in the foreseeable future. Maybe Richard's more optimistic than I am. No. <laughs> um, now, again, because coal is a, a powerful political symbol and to abandon coal in its time of need would be symbolic of cutting and running. So bizarrely, in, in Australia, as, as world demand for coal declines, as the cost of renewables collapses, rather than have a grown-up public debate where we say, well... The world's not shaping up the way we thought it was. Let's plan. The opposite is happening. The the, the more popular renewable energy becomes, the uh, the more that the world coal demand softens. The the greater the incentive for for the barrackers for coal in Australia to pledge their ongoing loyalty. As the world's largest thermal coal exporter. Um, our production plans will have an impact on the world price of coal. Our plan is to push the price of coal down, and that makes the transition in other countries away from renewables harder. And, you know, if you take the science of climate change seriously, which I do, uh, then not only is that the opposite of a just transition, but anything that's lowering the price of coal globally at the moment seems to be the opposite of what every economist and climate scientist says we need. The political class in Australia are, are determined to see it as a symbolic issue. Are you on the side of coal? Not, are you really trying to help people who currently work in existing coal mines? Dialogue I'll tell you is true as me life Between a coal owner Poor Pittman's wife She was travelling all on the highway She met a coal owner And as she did say Derry down, 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 Derry down Good morning Lord Firedamp The woman did say don't be alarmed, sir, don't be afraid For if you've been where I've been the most of me life You'd never turn pale at a poor pitman's wife Derry down, 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 Derry down Where do you come from? The coal owner cried I come from hell, the poor woman replied If you come from hell then come tell me right plain How you contrive it to get out again Derry down, 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 Derry down 
the way I got out, sir, the truth I will tell They're throwing the poor folks all out of hell This is to make room for the rich wicked race For there's a great number of them in that place Derry down, 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 Derry down The next in command To arrive in hell As I understand For I heard the old devil say As I came out The coal owners all had received Their route Derry down, down Down, Derry down How does the devil behave in that place? Sir, he is cruel to the rich, wicked race. He is far more crueler than you can suppose. Just like a mad bull with a ring through his nose. Derry down, 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 Derry down. Be a coal owner, take my advice Agree with your men and give them a fair price For if and you do not, I know very well You'll be in great danger of going to hell Derry down, 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 Derry down music you heard was sung by Robert Farmer. The song is called The Coal Owner and the Pitman's Wife and it was created in 1844 by William Hornsby. You're listening to the Climate Action Radio Show at 3CR in Melbourne and Radio Skid Row in Sydney. Warwick Jordan gave a talk to the Climate Action Network of Australia Brown Bag Lunch. He spoke from the Hunter Valley Coal Mining Region. Newcastle is the biggest coal mining port in the world and miners up there can earn big money. But Warwick talked about a new group called the Hunter Jobs Alliance. It's an alliance of unions and environment groups. He also spoke about Hunter Renewal and we'll hear from them after we hear from Warwick. Hunter Jobs Alliance is a a locally focused alliance with uh, how many have we got? 13 Um, member organisations, so nine unions and four environment groups. We've got the AMWU, um, who are a big part of pulling the alliance together, Um, also the ETU, um, quite a number of other unions, including those with um, quite a a strong membership base um, across all regions and and regional communities. Um, And then on the environment side, uh, Lock the Gate, um, who were, were very critical in, in the founding of the Alliance, similarly Labor Environmental Action Network, um, got the Hunter Community Environment Centre and the Nature Conservation Council as well. So the, the genesis of, of the Hunter Jobs Alliance, um, obviously the polarisation, the culture war, the conflict around climate, um, the fear around uh, structural economic change around energy industries, however you want to describe it, um, has 
spilled over from the the Hunter Valley and other regions in Australia and and become a, a handbrake or a, a spanner in the works. And I know sometimes it's difficult to to reflect on how serious a, a problem that is, but I, I guess I was only thinking seeing um, seeing the PM speech um, and some of the content going on at the G7 over there um, sort of speaks to the parallel reality realities that I think are informing the work of the Hunter Jobs Alliance. So, yeah, and where you can see it come across in situations where your Prime Minister is um, is wandering around on the other side of the world, you know, talking essentially what's a foreign language to a, a bunch of world leaders who are focused on a very different reality. And the reason he feels like he can get away with that or that he needs to do that is because there's places like the Hunter and large numbers of people who are very worried about their future. And, and so you can see how those realities you know, go from separate realities into combined ones. And so where that sort of comes into the story of the, the Jobs Alliance, what's going on as far as changes in our industries are a real concern. You know, we can see what's happening, but we don't have a lot of confidence that there is any appetite or, or expectation or capacity in government or, or businesses to really do much about it. So if you guys want to take the lead, then show us what it looks like, show us what's real, show us what's practical. From the point of view of unions, they were acutely aware that the way the debate had been conducted, the culture war or the conflict between unionist environmentalists as as portrayed or um, even just the day-to-day concerns that people have about putting food on the table if major industries change, all of that was turning into a political problem that was constraining action to deal with structural change. So they needed to deal with that. And, and the motivation of some of the environment groups, you know, particularly Lock the Gate and the Lean guys, was that the, you know, the, the politics as conducted the culture war was making it impossible to get anything done in terms of those policy tools that we know we need. And I think there is a really interesting observation about this that, um, you know, I think a lot of times, and so my background is largely in the environment movement. So I think a lot of times, you know, it's really hard yards making progress in terms of environmental outcomes. We're acutely aware that for a, a worker and community environment based alliance, where our, our level of influence comes from is directly from the community. And our take is that there is most of the people in the Hunter region who are a bit sick of this shit fight about, you know, what we could or, or should do with with coal mining or, or industries. And a lot of people are concerned about what the future looks like. A lot of people are concerned about the environment issues, but there has been a lack of the type of leadership that's required to be able to, um, to have a crack at showing people what a conversation looks like that isn't as hostile. Our biggest constraint is if there is a politically hostile conversation that is not putting the right expectations on business and government, not providing permission or space for them to do what they need to do to move us in the right direction. In the absence of that, there's a really hard ceiling on the things that we need to do to support workers, attract new jobs um, and, and get the environmental outcomes we need. The actual doing of how you redirect the forces of capital and structural economic change in a way that treats people fairly and benefits a region 
is actually harder than the politics. So, look, we're quite focused on how we deal with that cultural or, or social or political issue, um, and that's frighteningly difficult, if I'm honest. We have a couple of challenges. On one hand, the the need to set a really big picture vision that people can get behind is obviously critical to inspiring people about what the future looks like. Um, but we also come with some lead in our saddlebags in the Hunter region as well in that we've had, you know, 10, maybe even 15 years of, um, you know, people, including myself, sometimes crying wolf a bit around the future of the thermal coal export industry and, you know, despite a few blips, it's still going strongly. And so we've got a, a twin challenge there. On one hand, we need to lay out a really clear vision and get people excited about that. On the other hand, a lot of the things that we might lay out in that vision probably sound like bullshit to normal people in the region. And so that is a critical challenge. We're not starting from scratch. We're starting from a point where there is fatigue and cynicism and words like transition have become a stand-in for culture war-based, you know, elite bashing environmental politics. And so that's a reality we have to deal with. So we've got to claw that territory back. You know, a bit of the debate around transition, it's sort of been defined a bit by sort of academic camp, you know. There's these things that people say that are the stuff that you're supposed to do, but then, you know, underneath the top line, there's not a lot of detail. So our job is really to flesh that out and be really good at that. The big one that we're looking at is our aluminium smelter here, high-intensity, time-sensitive energy user that has some issues with renewables penetration, is also majority owned by Rio Tinto that has large decarbonisation imperatives, is the biggest bit of legacy heavy industry in the Hunter, employs several thousand people. If we can't keep that here in a clean energy environment, then you know our future in terms of a manufacturing focus is probably pretty limited. Help, help. Hello down there. Are you okay? No, I'm stuck. Stuck? Yeah, I'm stuck in a country that for two decades has done nothing on climate change. Oh no! Can I grab you a rope? No, there's a rock on me. I, I can't move. A rock? What the hell? Well, it's a weight of despair and an apathetic government, powerful lobby groups and an indifferent mainstream media. Dear God, what on earth can I do to help? Go now and pledge money for the 3CR Radiothon. Great. What do I do? Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. I'll go right away. The first question was about the big wages that miners can earn. And although the writing is on the wall for them, manufacturing will never be able to pay those wages to them. We have lower skill levels than a lot of regions, particularly Sydney, but but others. Um, We also have high wages as well. And so, you know, we have this nice glossy brochure in the Hunter about, you know, our skills and our infrastructure and our location and all of that type of thing um but there's a hard reality when a company's looking to check all their boxes and um the availability availability and price of skilled labor is one of those um probably our biggest concern in the hunter region is that we'll get hollowed out economically and essentially we'll be 
um, reliant on government spending services industry without a lot of wealth generating industries. And so that's where things like advanced manufacturing, where you don't necessarily have the same uh, intensity of jobs, but you, you're creating an environment where you can create more growth, you can create more work, um, you, you can get people to retrain into those sectors. But it's not it's not easy, it's not smooth, it's it's really it's really choppy. You know, we hear this thing all the time: coal workers don't mind what they do; they just want to get paid the same amount of money for doing something. And I, that's undoubtedly true for a lot of people. But it's also not that helpful because there is nothing else that they can do for that amount of money. And then also there's a fair whack of people who actually like being coal miners, you know, like they, they like the work, they like the they like everything that goes with it, they like it being near where they are. And so I, it's a real, I struggle with that one a bit because on one hand it's absolutely true, but on the other hand it's not super helpful. The second question was about how supportive local industry groups are to this new Hunter Jobs Alliance. You know, with Atomago, or we have a great organisation here um, called HunterNet that was formed as a SME supporting organisation prior to the BHP closure. You know, we've got our Australian Industry Group, or we've got Port of Newcastle. They're they're willing to engage with us and and have a conversation because they can see what we're trying to do. We're actually quite a capital-starved region, apart from the you know, billions that have rolled in for, for coal mining and related infrastructure and defence money. We're like any other region on the global periphery who's trying to survive off legacy capital investments. And so there's actually not a big locus. Like probably the best way I'd describe it is that since BHP left, no one's really been in charge of the Hunter Valley. You know, there's not a place you can go to have a conversation with, with industry. It's quite fragmented. So we've got a theory of change around how we engage with industry, which is all about showing that we've got something to say and probably increasingly from this point on trying to put a rocket up the region to take these kind of issues seriously. And, and we'll just see how that goes in terms of industry engagement. But I'm actively spending time at the moment trying to engage with industry and be around the right forums and to sort of understand what they think the problem is and then what we could potentially offer to, um, to be a part of resolving it. You're listening to the Climate Action Show. Warwick Jordan is from the Hunter Jobs Alliance. It's a new group trying to liaise with business, government, unions and environment groups. It's a bottom-up coordinating group and I think they'll eventually get some good traction. Warwick reminded me to talk to Amanda Carl and I will interview her for a future show but here's an extract from Amanda's talk about about how to really engage with communities and bring them along. We heard at the start of the show how German communities in the Ruhr Valley did it and Amanda from the Next Economy, that's the name of her group, the Next Economy, is invited all over Australia to engage communities, listen carefully and build on what they've already got. And this is what is very urgently necessary here. For a long time in Australia, at least for most people, the system kind of worked. And so they've never had to question it. They've never had to get political before. And I think it's, we forget it's only been the last five years that we've had the huge climate strikes and and movements that have really shaken people up and asked them to really question how the system works. Now's the time to start building that capacity and supporting people to figure things out. 
So I just want to finish with probably a practical example of what this has looked like for us over the last 12 months and how seemingly disparate kind of activities can actually come together um, to create political change. So as I said, we've worked all over Australia, but over the last 12 months, we really focused on Queensland, given the results of the last federal election and how Queensland voted. So we'd already been doing forums in a range of different places across Queensland. And so when Queensland voted um, was really the decisive factor in the federal election in voting in a prime minister that kissed a lump of coal in parliament, I got contacted by the editor of The Guardian to say, hey, don't you do work in these communities? Do you know why these people voted the way they voted? You, would you write an article on it? And to tell you the truth, I was, I was a bit scared. <laughs> but I was like, actually, I'm really angry at what I'm hearing people in places like Melbourne say, that they're just calling Queenslanders bogans. Because actually, I'm actually hearing that there's a whole lot of really serious issues in regional areas that nobody's talking about. So I understand why people are pretty angry and might have voted as a protest. So I wrote an article. Um, wasn't my choice of title, but it ended up being called Why It's Easy to Dismiss Queenslanders Coal Addicted Bogans, but, the, but It's More Complex Than That. Interestingly, the article kind of went international and I got friends in Switzerland texting me about it or messaging me about it. But the other people who were watching were senior politicians in the Queensland government. And I got invited to a forum that was being hosted by the Deputy Premier and the Shadow Federal um, Environment Minister to explore why Queensland was so divided. And the message was very clear from all five speakers that in regional Queensland, people wanted answers. They wanted to understand transition. They wanted to know what was gonna happen after coal. And the fact that the government wasn't having that conversation just made people angrier and more scared. The Deputy Premier listened, but at the end of the forum said, I'm sorry, Amanda, but the polling just doesn't say that people are ready to have that conversation yet. And the room erupted. There's 350 people in the room and they, they were very noisy. And I said, you have to listen to that. If we can't have a conversation about it, if you can't show that we've got ways forward, of course people, why would anyone trust you? So I went up to her after the forum and she was pretty angry. Um, and I said to her, look, I know how to have the conversation. Can we just have a meeting? Because I think this is a really important time. So we had a meeting. Um, she put me in touch with some departments and six months later, we had Queensland government funding to run a series of a roadshow, an energy transition roadshow across six regions in Queensland, including coal areas in central Queensland. And what was interesting about the forums was how there was a real shift from before the fires where people were like, okay, we'll turn up this transition, yep, what's involved exactly, to January and February where people were saying, okay, yep, climate change. All right, we don't really understand it. We don't want to argue about it, but we need to get on with it. What are we going to do? We don't know what the future of coal is. So how do we diversify for no matter what happens, we're actually more resilient? People would start off quite tentative at the beginning. We would have a series of presenters who were experts in their fields talking about trends and talking about economic opportunities. And the, the mood would shift and people would sort of look up and go, oh, we've already got this. We've actually got something that we can work on. But the other interesting reaction were the, the government people in the room. We had a number of public servants in the room and they listened. And a few of them came up to me and called me after the forum and said, wow, we didn't want to have this conversation because we thought it was politically toxic. 
But now we actually can see that people want action. They want a transition plan. They want to understand it. This is going to make our job easier to fight for what we know needs to happen. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep us going for another year. Independent community media is more important than ever, and we need your support to power community radio. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03 9419 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR Community Powered Radio. Here are some of the people Warwick spoke about uh, from Kentucky, actually, these ones. They're coal miners who've had to make a transition as the bottom fell out of their industry. And they were brought here to speak to our uh, Hunter Valley people by Hunter Renewal. We had complete devastation with the coal industry where I'm from. Man, it was just a boom like it is now. Everything's supposed to be good. Then just one day, it's all gone. 3,500 people laid off. No jobs, nothing, nowhere to go, nothing to do. And within the six months that followed that, it ended up being a little over 10,000 people in the coal industry with no job. So, you know, it, it wiped out our community. The coal market somewhat bottomed out back in 2012, I guess. And the coal companies just packed up and left. The people that followed the market you know, of course, knew there was going to be some market change, but nobody ever expected what we got, and the coal companies was hiding it completely. I mean, these coal companies told us, the little ones that are now are still saying, they're going to be there forever, and we have people that believe that, but we all know that the end of coal is coming, and we have to get in front of it. You can see so much of the same thing that's happening here that's what's happened to us back in Kentucky. Lock the Gate organised the Hunter Renewal Summit because we were concerned that the pretense that you know, the future for the coal industry in the Hunter is unending and it's always going to be rosy was papering over a, a very great risk for this region of a sudden decline of coal that might leave thousands of people jobless if we don't have plans in place to replace the coal mining industry with, with new jobs and new opportunities communities have to get involved and people have to see that there's a need for a just transition for environmental reasons you know for climate change and also just for the inevitable end of the market you know fossil fuels the cost is going up and the cost of renewables is coming down so that market is closing and people have to realize that if not we're going to be stuck even farther behind what we asked for in Latrobe Valley is a transition authority in the Latrobe Valley that was well represented by people from the community and also the workforce in, that, uh, in those regions. But those committees at the Latrobe Valley or say Hunter Valley or Port Augusta region, I think they also need to connect and I think the federal government needs to put together a regional overarching authority that looks at how we're going to transition this country to uh, a renewable future. We're just trying to get displaced coal miners retrained. I got involved in a program for displaced coal miners that retrained me in like energy efficiency. I've got several certifications in building and home performance, uh, solar applications, 
and uh, come April 1st, I will actually be starting my own business. I would recommend that the people really truly research who they plan to vote for and make sure that these people that they get in office are aware of the, not so much the industry needs, but the people's needs. Authorised by Georgina Woods for Lock the Gate Alliance, Lismore. In this edited extract from the World Bank podcast, Christopher Sheldon tells us about just transitions in the coal sector. And thank you to Rumin Islam, who interviewed him. The low-carbon forms of energy that are coming in, they're, they're displacing coal in many regions as they become much more affordable. Now, it, it does differ around the world, but in Eastern Europe and the Balkans, for example, we're finding that for every megawatt of power, there's a subsidy to coal of around about five euros. Governments can't afford to be providing those sorts of subsidies. Um, so there needs to be a transition where that money can be put to better uses. And for one example, in a country we looked at, just one year's worth of subsidies would actually pay for the cost of just transition of those coal mines and power plants. Many of these coal regions in transition, they're mono-industrial towns. So closing the coal mines and the power plants, it can have a devastating impact on that whole e economy in that area. Uh, the sector is often the most important employer. We, we just did a study in Greece's Western Macedonia, and we found not only were they the largest formal employer, but they actually accounted for 50% of value added in the region. So you can imagine if those mines and power plants are closed, output drops. And if there's no good alternative identified, then it's going to have pretty serious economic uh, consequences. When we looked at that region, one of the first things we did is to look at these economic alternatives. We found several you know, good economic alternatives in the region. Uh, one of them was actually to retain that energy producing character of the region by adopting cleaner and uh, more uh, fiscally sustainable energy production to replace the coal fire power that was going to be closed. You know, in some of these areas, and it's not just in this particular area, there's a lot of land, abundant land that it can be used for solar power. You've got uh, old mine dams and pits that you could use to create pump storage with that solar power. Well, we worked in Romania from around 1999 to 2011, and I, and I worked there for quite a number of years, years myself. And we supported the government on closing uneconomic mines across the whole country. The hard coal center was the Jew Valley. And when we looked at that valley, we, we had to try to help them identify other alternatives. Nowadays, they're looking at reinventing themselves with new investment um, in skiing and tourism. Uh, at that time, I remember uh, one of the old mines being converted into a logging facility. Um, another mine, which is closer to the city, taking the old mine buildings and breaking them into smaller workspace centers to support small and medium enterprises that were being created. Outside of the Jew Valley, I remember another mine in Romania being turned into a, um, a factory for fiber optic cabling and others just returned back to agricultural uses. And then there's more than one set of people affected. Obviously, there's the workers. They're directly impacted by closure. But there's also other community members in the region that get affected. The workers typically receive either early retirement if they're close to retirement or um, packages to, um, to support them for retraining or developing new skills for new jobs. Uh, some even start new business ventures. In fact, in Romania, after doing a number of these different um, programs, we found that 60% of the workers who wanted to stay in the workforce 
actually found a job of equal or higher pay than when they were mining. While initially we focused on the workers, we found that it was important to expand beyond that, to really go to their families, extended families, even the wider community. Because if if our goal is to help maintain incomes, not only in the household, but that community in that region, then if you support the, the wider community, they might even employ miners. So a miner may not start a new business, but someone else might start a business that can employ that miner. And through doing that, you can bring in you know, economic transformation into that economy. I'll take an example of Poland where we work. Uh, when we were designing the uh, packages to support the workers when the mines were closed, almost all, or actually all of the underground mine workers were men. But when you look at the surface workers, administrative workers, many of them were women. So it was very important that the the government provided financial support not only to men but also to women so that when a mine closed, you know, everybody was able to receive the right kind of support on ending employment. We should move on to environmental considerations associated with closing a coal mine. I assume there are quite a few of these. Could you perhaps take us through some of them? Yeah, there's a lot. So, you know, you can just imagine a uh, a mining area, you've got a lot of buildings, you've got big shafts, lots of heavy equipment. So, so when you close a mine, you've got to ensure that all those unwanted buildings and equipment, that they're all removed, that the impacted land is cleaned up and rehabilitated, that the site's secure, that it's safe, and particularly in coal mining, that any methane issues are addressed. I mean, I've literally seen, you know, whole mining areas, you know, transformed into recreational areas, really turning something ugly into something beautiful. If a mine's not properly closed and sealed, then that methane, it it can escape through cracks or vents um, into the atmosphere. And we have to avoid that. So you can address that through proper sealing of the mine shafts, um, or in some cases, actually natural flooding will, will, will seal it naturally. But in particularly gassy mines, methane can actually be captured and used, and you, you just have to stop it being vented um, up into the atmosphere. In some cases, it is actually burned before it goes to avoid that. But the ultimate thing is to stop methane just simply escaping because of the environmental impact. So during our recent work in Greece, we actually developed a, a tool, a land utilization repurposing application, we call it Lura, that looked at factors like the location, the topography, the presence of water, et cetera, and then categorized that land as whether it was best suited for agriculture or for industry, for forestry or or some other uses. So using the tool, along with consultation with the community, I have to stress is very important, you can actually develop some optimal solutions for the post-mining lands rather than just leaving it up to guesswork. It's complex and it does take a long time, but I think it's important to break it down into to bite-sized stages. So the very first uh, stage that we identify, we call it pre-closure. So that's a lot of early planning, preparedness, a lot of consultation with a diverse group of stakeholders. That's more of a 12 to 18 month type process. Then secondly, you have that closure of the mine or the, the coal plant safely and justly. That's a two to three year process. And then lastly, the regional transition with the programs and projects that really support that over a longer period of time after the mine and the power plant are closed. That's something that takes five or more years. Governance of the process is actually one of the most important questions and where we provide a lot of support. So it doesn't succeed if it's all top down from central government, nor does it really work totally bottom up without that 
high-level support. So you need a clear governance structure that involves all of the stakeholders. That's absolutely critical for success. So the overall responsibility is usually with the national government, but the mine, the local community, the local and regional leaders, they've all got to be involved to guide that process. The national government often sets policy and provides a lot of financial support, but everybody has to work together to make this successful. Coal mines have some very specific environmental considerations, but these general lessons that we talked about, um, you know, dependent on a single economic activity, uh, the, the need for government and the other stakeholders to work together, having a plan for the longer term and looking at the, the costs associated with that, um, looking at alternative economic activity, all those things are applicable in the non-coal sector. So we think there's a lot of lessons here that can be applied elsewhere. I think the last thing is that even though I've said this is a difficult process, I, I just do want to leave a message that there is hope. Uh, while it's difficult, I, we really do believe with that proper planning, just transition can be achieved. Thank you, dear listeners, for joining me in the first of a series about how to transition our coal-dependent communities to a bright future. Thank you to Luke Skinner from the Climate Justice Union in Western Australia. He briefed me in a marathon conversation and I'm really looking forward to interviewing him soon. Thank you to the Stockholm Environment Institute for their interviews with Roy Green, Rod Campbell and Richard Dennis. Thanks to Warwick Jordan at the Hunter Jobs Alliance and Georgina Woods at the Hunter Renewal. They are both really using all their energy to guide this coal export hub, this biggest coal port in the, in the world, Newcastle and the Hunter Valley behind it, into a climate safe future. Thank you to Christopher Sheldon at the World Bank and to Amanda Carl at The Next Economy. And lastly, please don't forget your donation to Radiothon. We only ask once a year, and I know many people who take climate action are already stretched and giving their all. Also, at this time of year, I'm getting emails by the bucket load asking me to chip in for this and that. But really, we only ask you once a year. And independent and creative journalism, as we, I think, provide you with, needs your support. So please call 03 nine four one nine eight three double seven during business hours or you can donate online right now at three cr.org forward slash donate. Thank you very much listeners. Good night and good luck. some breaking news. I've just received the report for our Radiothon donations. It's a huge encouragement to us. You'll never know what we've been through this year, but we are so grateful to you for supporting us and travelling along with us. So far, we have raised $1,885. We've got a way to go, so keep donating. But these early donors are and many thanks to them, Susan Sharp, David Robinson, John Kent, Juliet Fox, Anna Carmody, Fiona Bennett, Sue Abbott. Then Heck Media, 
EMB SMB Climate Action and Sydney friends who attended a film night about Jack Mundy. We're having another one soon, COVID permitting. For all of those who intended to send us some money and still can, please phone 039419-8377. That's 039419-8377. Or donate online at 3cr.org forward slash donate.